Thank you. Let's begin our time in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. St. Joseph, pray for us. St. John Paul II, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, it is a joy, a blessing to be with you this morning. I'm especially glad I got the morning slot while you're all wide awake. Um, speaking of being awake, I was at a mass about three or four weeks ago with my family. I went to 5 p.m. Sunday mass, and it was late in the day. I was a little tired, and you know, the priest, God bless him, was a, a missionary priest from India. He had a thick accent. Uh, he read his homily. And, uh, you know, the last time someone read to me, it was my mom, and she was trying to put me to sleep. Uh, and, and you can see where this is going. So maybe a couple minutes into the homily, I start to drift into deep contemplation. Um, and uh, I've got my four-year-old boy kind of sitting on my lap, cuddling. And, uh, and, and by the end of the homily, I'm sorry, I was, I was completely asleep. And uh, my, my slumber was broken um, after the homily. The priest quietly began walking back to his chair, and the whole church was silent. And what I was awoken by was the piercing sound of my four-year-old's voice echoing off the marble of the church as he yells, Wake up, Dad! <laughs> That'll get you up real fast. So, hi, guys. Uh, and so they keep you humble, don't they? You know, and, and speaking of humility, I'm humbled to be here in front of you today. Um, to stand in front of you. Many of you have been walking with the Lord long, much longer than I have. Uh, my wife and I, we've been married for uh, 16 years. Um, we have eight children right now. We've got uh, John Paul, Colby, Mary, Michael, Angelica, Joseph, Luke, and Lewis. Um, don't ask me which one's which, but I know those are, in fact, their names. Um, but many of you have been married decades longer than I have. But here I am speaking to you, you know, about masculinity. feels a bit out of place. Uh, I remember years ago I was speaking in Honduras, and as we were traveling from one presentation to the next, our, my driver said, oh, down that dirt road is a cloistered convent of uh, nuns, of religious sisters. And I'm like, oh, well, well, can we go, you know, to the convent and ask them to pray for all the high school students we'll be speaking to? He said, that's a great idea. We drive down the road and we go into the cloistered convent, and all the sisters are coming out of mass, and they enter into the parlor to greet us. And they come behind their grate, and my translator there, I said, well, can you ask them to pray for, you know, our trip? And, and the sisters did. And the translator said, oh, the nun said to you, uh, you're here giving chastity talks? We said, yes, yes, yes. And the elderly nun, probably 85 years old, said, oh, why don't you give us a chastity talk? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> and they sat down. I'm like, no, no, this is not happening. Like, 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 they're kidding, right? And she's like, no, they want to chastity talk. And I'm like, this is like, like Pope Francis asking Donald Trump for a talk on poverty. Like, this is like going in the wrong direction here. Um, they sat down and had to do it. And, uh, you know, so it's was, it was a bit, bit, bit humbling, you know. And so I don't stand up here today as like, hey, I'm the icon of Catholic masculinity and I've got it all figured out. I've got my icons that I look to, uh, primarily my grandpa. Uh, my grandpa's a World War II vet, and uh, you know, after he graduated high school, he went pretty much straight off to war uh, after marrying his high school sweetheart. Uh, I remember after he passed away, his sons were telling me that you know, he would fly his plane deliberately into thunderstorms at night over enemy territory to evade Japanese fighter aircraft. On one of his missions, he was flying 300 miles behind enemy territory in Burma, uh, delivering a cargo load of barbed wire to an, a U.S. Army camp. And uh, they're flying over hostile territory 
territory, and one of the engines of the plane just cuts out, and the plane starts plummeting toward the ground. And, and he and the crew mem- members start throwing the barbed wire out the back of the plane to lighten the cargo load. And they're lacerating their arms on the wires. And, and he's just, he just stops and he prays, thinks of his new bride back home and the children they might have one day. And he just prays that God would save. Because he knows if he had to land that plane, the Japanese soldiers that were underneath would, would slaughter them. They took no prisoners. And he just prayed and the engine all of a sudden came back on. He pulls the plane out of this dive turns around, gets back home safely, and then raises 10 children with his wife. And their names were Joseph and Mary. It doesn't get much better than that. And, and these types of stories, this type of heroism, these types of families, like it's just not, we're just not seeing it anymore. I mean, you look at our culture right now, and it's an absolute crisis. It, it, it's a mess. I mean, if you look on Facebook, your children on Facebook can now choose between 58 genders to identify on Facebook. 58. Facebook in the UK is up to 71. Tumblr, a popular website for today's teens, offers them a selection of more than 500 genders to pick from. You can be intersex non-binary, transmasculine, two-spirit, gender non-conforming, astral gender, astrogender. It's like, what is going on? Like, I had enough of an identity crisis growing up when there were two to pick from. And now... Kids are expected to navigate through this. We've got crisis in the culture. We've got crisis in the, in the church, from the Vatican bank scandals to corruption with cardinals down to our local parish priests. And let's, let's be honest. I mean, it's enough to shake up anybody's faith. And then we've got break, breakdown in the family. One high school boy said to me, he said, Jason, I know what you mean about divorce. He said, Jason, my dad is on his ninth marriage. Unbelievable breakdown. We spoke at one high school in Texas. They had 87 girls pregnant at the school, including the junior high. There were more than 100 pregnancies there. There was even a fifth grade girl pregnant at this school. And one of the girls we met was seven months pregnant. She just told her parents the news. They didn't know she was expecting because she was avoiding them a lot. And now that she's told them that she's pregnant, she didn't know how to tell them the rest of the story, which is that her boyfriend lives in her closet. That's correct. Her boyfriend's been living in her closet for more than a year. He, they bring leftover, she brings leftovers after dinner up for, you know, feed him. He jumps out the window to hang out with friends. This has been going on for a year, and the parents had no idea. And so the moral of the story is when you get home tonight, check the closet. I'm sure, I'm sure things are going better at your place. But, I mean, just unbelievable breakdown. In the midst of the chaos and the corruption, the confusion, a lot of people just kind of want to throw in the towel, kind of give up hope. Like, man, isn't everything just going to hell in a handbasket? They give up hope. In fact, I was invited to speak at an all-boys high school in Louisiana, 1,400 boys. And before my talk, a teacher came to me, and he said, you're going to speak to these boys? I said, yes. He said, about chastity? I said, yes. He said, son, I'd rather speak to the leaders of the Ku Klux Klan on interracial marriage than to these boys on chastity. And thanked him for his vote of confidence, but... uh, He didn't realize the most common standing ovation we get is all boys' audiences. They're hungry for this stuff. And so although we're tempted to give up hope, I mean, we got to put things in context. You may have heard this quote from uh, uh, Sister Lucia. This is the, 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 the visionary from Our Lady of Fatima's apparitions in the early 1900s. And this is what she said recently before she passed away in a letter to Cardinal Kafara. She said, the final battle between the Lord and the kingdom of Satan will be about marriage in the family. Don't be afraid, because anyone 
who works for the sanctity of marriage and the family will always be fought and opposed in every way because this is the decisive issue. But she said not to be afraid because Our Lady has already crushed his head. And so the family is not only the battleground, the family is the weapon. G.K. Chesterton has called the family a cell of resistance to oppression. And so if you think, what's the instrument that God used for the redemption of mankind? It was the holy family. And God does not change his ways. And the weapon he needs now more than anything is holy families. And so, so how? You know, how we make holy families? The temptation is to look at the problem as outside of us. Oh, it's the culture. Oh, it's the Vatican. Oh, it's this, that. We got to look inside. In fact, John Paul II, uh, when he was speaking to college men in Poland once, he said this, we are often tempted not to enter the depth of our own conscience. Let us reject this immediately and proceed into the depth. And so we need to look inside. Like, is there stuff in me that needs to get rooted out? I recently read for the first time St. Thomas Aquinas' definition of effeminacy. Now, this is not his definition of femininity. It's not his definition of same-sex attraction. This is his definition of effeminacy. It is when a man, the unwillingness of a man to put aside his pleasure in order to pursue what is arduous and difficult. The unwillingness of a man to put aside what is pleasurable in order to pursue what is arduous and difficult. And I think if there's anything that has made our culture effeminate and emasculinized, what it is, it's, it's pornography. And if you're like me, you were exposed to this stuff from a very young age. I mean, the first time I ever saw this stuff, I was in second grade, riding my bike around the neighborhood, and we found some dirty magazine in the street. I'm like, what's that? I'm like, oh, nice to meet you. I'm like, what, what do we do with it? My friend said, let's keep it. I'm like, well, yeah, where do we put it? He said, let's put it at your house. I said, that's a good idea. And so back to the house, and I'm like, I'm not putting it inside. I'm not getting busted. Like, I'd never seen porn before, but I knew something was wrong. I said, I know what to do. So we ripped out all our favorite pictures, crumpled them up in little balls, and then we shoved them into bushes in front of the house. We'd come outside and look at them when we wanted. Now, the problem is my dad trimmed the hedges Saturday afternoon, found porn growing on the plants out front, so I got busted by the porn plant, but like, we got back into it. In my high school, it was everywhere. One boy in my high school passed out porn from his locker to anyone who would vote for him as senior class vice president. He's in the hallway, vote for Travis, vote for Travis. Like, I don't know where he is today. He's probably in Congress by now. But, you know, we would just, we'd laugh it off. We're like, oh, it's not a big deal. I'm not getting anyone pregnant, just appreciating womanhood. But we were getting emasculated in the process. I no longer even knew how to look at a woman except through the lens of lust. And what was I training myself for? It's like when I was in college, I played three years of college baseball. And one day I'm in the outfield and the coach yells at me. He's like, Everett, come in. You know, I run to the dugout. I'm like, are you pulling me out of the game? He said, no, I want you to pitch. And I'm like, I don't pitch. He said, no, I saw you in batting practice. Got an arm. I need you a couple innings. I'm like, coach, look, I didn't even pitch high school ball. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. He said, you're going to be great. I said, I'm going to look like an idiot. And I get out there. I'm like, what am I going to do? Everybody's ready. The crowd's there. The batter digs in. The catcher squats down. And the catcher starts giving me signs. And you watch baseball. You're an Astros fan. You know, you know about signs. And so, yeah, you, know, you know, you want to throw a fastball? You agree with the pitch. Kind of nod your head and you throw it. You disagree. You shake your head. He'll suggest a different one. You want to throw a curveball, knuckleball, forkball. What do you want? My problem is I don't have a good fastball. I don't have a reliable curveball. I don't have a knuckleball. I have a baseball. That's what I have. And so I'm like, 
like, what am I going to do? I said, you know, I know what I'm going to do. I want to play mental games with the batter. You know, so the batter digs in, the catcher squats down. He's like, one. I'm like, no. He's like, two. I'm like, no, number two. Three, no. Four, no. Then he starts laughing at me. He's running out of fingers at this point. He, he gets like number seven. I'm like, oh, yeah, number seven, whatever that is, you know. And the, the batter's like, how many pitches do I have? I threw the first pitch. I hit the guy on the first pitch. I hit the batter. That's how it goes. But... The, the moral of the story being is that if you train yourself for years, lust, 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 and then the day comes to love a woman, you can't fake it. All you know how to do is take your own pleasure. And unfortunately, these vices are not things that end with childhood. They drag on well into marriages like a cancer. In fact, one high school girl said to me, she said, Jason, I found out my dad looks at porn. She said, I used to look up to him. Now I can't even look at him. I thought he was a better man than that. She's like, Jason, my dad is lusting after girls who are two years older than I am while my mom's sleeping in the next room. Then it erases internet history, thinks we don't know, kisses my mom and goes to work. She said, it makes me sick how much I resent that guy. She said, Jason, I just want to have sex with a boy despite my father because he obsesses so much about my innocence and yet he cares nothing about his own or that of other women. And so we need to be cut to the heart with this, of like, God, this is a vice that I've been struggling with. God, what do I need to do to break free? And the solution is not to kill our sexual desires. Some people think, well, what am I supposed to do? Just basically repress my desires and make God happy, or I can at least indulge them and make me happy? But repression will not please God, and indulgence will not bring us joy. What we're being called to is a perfection of our sexual desire and virtue. Now, what, what does that look like? The Catholic Church has a saint named St. Vitalis of Gaza who spent all his money on prostitutes. The guys lived in Africa, and he worked under the hot sun, and he'd take all the money he earned, and he'd bring it to a different prostitute every night. So she'd spend the whole night with him and no other man. But instead of using the girls, he brought them the gospel prayed with them, prayed for them, told them they could start over, converted a great number of prostitutes who became holy wives and mothers. One morning, he's walking out of a brothel, the house of prostitution, and a man saw him, recognized him as a Christian, was so sick of Christian hypocrites, hit the guy in the head with something and killed him. And the prostitutes came out and they said, well, you don't understand who he was, but it was too late and he was dead. And historians say that when he was being buried... All these former prostitutes came processing with candles and lanterns to his gravesite to honor the man who saw their dignity when they had totally forgotten it. Now, I'm not recommending you try that as a method of evangelization. I mean, like, don't be going to your head at Knights of Columbus. Hey, can we raise money to get a prostitute for the group? You know, service hours. Okay, that's a bad idea. But the point is the redemption of the heart is possible. And so, well, well, how do we do it? I mean, we need specifics here. Well, we need strategies in the spiritual life. Because, like, when I played Little League as a kid, you don't have any strategy. You just sit out there in the outfield and you play in the dirt and kind of chew on your mitt and think about dinosaurs or whatever. But then by the time you get to, like, collegiate baseball, you need, you need to have a plan, strategy. You're in the outfield thinking, okay... We've got a runner on first base. We've got one out. If the ball comes to me on the ground, I'm going to third base. If it's coming in the air, I'm going to second base. Before the bat is even swung, you know exactly what you're going to do. If you don't, you're going to be caught off guard. Same thing in the spiritual life. We need strategies that work. And so this is one that I've found to be helpful in my own life. Whenever I experience the temptation uh, or I, I see someone, you know, and I'm, I'm tempted to look at them in the wrong way or I have a flashback of something that I've seen in the past, you know, what I try to remember to do, I don't always do it, but I try to remember 
just inconspicuously just make a little sign of the cross on my forehead. Just nothing big, just something like that. And I remember the four parts of the cross. The first part is up. And so when I see beauty, what I try to remember is gratitude. So when you see someone beautiful, instead of being like, oh, it's occasion of sin, because people say, well, if you see someone beautiful, just bounce your eyes. And if you see another tempting thought, bounce your eye, bounce your eye. With today's culture, you're going to get whiplash after like three minutes of doing this. And yes, there is wisdom in having custody of the eyes and looking away from that which would tempt you to sin. But one way we can address this is when you see beauty, offer a prayer of gratitude to God. Thank you, God, for making her beautiful. You could even, when you see a beautiful woman, pray Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord mighty God. And move on. Don't read the entire chapter while looking at her. Get a little bit awkward there. But just that first line, gratitude. So the first part of the cross, up. Gratitude. Thank you, God, for making her beautiful. Then the cross goes down. And then you could think of this as contrition. God, I'm sorry for the times the many times I have failed to look rightly upon your daughters. Create in me a clean heart. But you don't want to dwell in the shame. You want to come out of that. And so the cross comes up and then goes off to the side. At this point, you could think of over to her. Look at her hand. Does she have a wedding ring? If she does, pray for her and her husband. If she does not have a ring, pray for her future husband, her future vocation. Pray for her in that. And so you're transforming temptation into intercession And then the final part of the cross moves away from her to the source of her beauty, which is God. And because ultimately the beauty should draw our hearts back up to God. And this little exercise, a little cross, these are the four parts of prayer outlined in the catechism of the Catholic Church. And so this encounter with temptation can be a moment where we encounter divine intimacy. And so if we forget these little strategies, one of the beauties is God has stamped it into our bodies as men, our calling. To, to, to be authentic Christian men. Now, what do I mean by that? We live in a culture right now that's trying to tell us that our bodies are meaningless. That if you feel like you're a woman, well, then that's reality. Your body is not an accurate gauge to who you are. No, your feelings tell you what reality is. This is not true. The body is not meaningless. But for years, we've been told, oh, no, gender is a social construct. Men and women are basically the same. It's just cultural conditioning that makes us think we're different. We give girls pink things and boys blue things, and it's just cultural conditioning. In fact, uh, years ago, there was a sociologist who believed this, and she set out to prove that boys and girls are the same, and we just condition them differently. So she had a little little girl, and she said, I'm going to raise my child gender neutral. Instead of having her be pink or blue, she will be yellow. I will give her trucks and guns and toys and dolls, and you'll see, I'm going to raise her gender neutral. She gave up on this little experiment. She was getting very frustrated because she said it's frustrating because she says every single night my daughter insists on tucking each of her trucks into bed one at a time. Good night, little trucky. Good night, little trucky. Could not scrub the femininity out of her. In fact, one of the best examples, it was a Hasbro, a toy company, years ago, wanted to make a gender-neutral playhouse, okay? This is like a dollhouse that boys and girls could play with in the same way. Well, that didn't go so well. Here's what they said. It soon emerged that girls and boys did not interact with the structure in the same way. The girls dressed the dolls, kissed them, and played house. The boys catapulted the toy baby carriage from the roof. A Hasbro manager came up with a novel explanation. Boys and girls are different. Well, you think so. And so the fact is, not only are we different, our bodies reveal this reality. 
our bodies as men are not meaningless. Our bodies are meaningful. This is something that John Paul II had been teaching us for years in his theology of the body. And some people dismiss the teachings of celibates. Oh, well, he's a priest. What could he know about sexuality and human love? But like, seriously, this idea that priests really can't know anything about love is nonsense. Because if you think about it, I'm, I'm a married man, so I really know one woman, and that's pretty much it. And she'd probably even argue I don't even know her that well. I mean, she even, she even told me once, she's like, Jason, you know, you're not a very good listener. I said to her, honey, I'm a motivational speaker, not a motivational listener. Now, she, she didn't think that was very funny, but I thought it was rather witty on my part. Um, but a priest, is not, a priest is not confined to one. Because a priest, you know, is hearing confessions of thousands of people and women and men of things they might not even say to their own spouses. Look at the day of the life of a priest. At 8 o'clock in the morning, you know, he could be getting up for morning mass, giving some kid his first communion. At noon, he could be hearing someone's confession who's been away from the faith for 30 years. In the afternoon, celebrating a marriage. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, be by someone's bedside as they pass into eternal life. This is one day in the life of a priest. Now you multiply that by 2,000 years, the wisdom of the saints. We want to get rid of that wisdom because they're, they're celibate. It would leave us poor. And if you really tap into their wisdom, it's exceptional. I mean, John Paul II has given to the church the theology of the body. Now, what this is is five years of Wednesday audiences where he discusses the meaning of the body, what it means to be human, and how we ought to live. And and it's incredibly beautiful stuff. And he wanted to bring this to the modern world because he knew that the family needed to be healed, culture needed to be restored. And he planned on a Wednesday audience in the early 1980s that he was going to launch the Pontifical Council for the Family and the International Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family. And those two things were going to be the teaching arm of the theology of the body and the world. And the night before, Monsignor Jeevish, who was his secretary, in the middle of the night woke up. He could hear a sound coming down the hallway. And he got up to make sure everything was okay and that the Holy Father was all right. And he looked around the hallway and looked in John Paul's room. The Holy Father wasn't there. And he walked down the hallway, and John Paul he found in, in the chapel kneeling before the Blessed Sacrament in the dead of night. And he was praying to the Blessed Sacrament, and Monsignor Jeevish could hear him praying because John Paul was speaking to the tabernacle, and he was praying out loud in Polish, and he was groaning in prayer, just travailing over something. And he kept saying in Polish, Dlaczego? 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 Which means, Why? Why? Like, why? Why now? I, I don't understand. And he's talking to the tabernacle. Now, Monsignor Jeevish, out of reverence, did not disturb the Holy Father. And he returned to his quarters and he went to bed. In the morning, Jeevish said that the Holy Father woke up. And normally, he's, he's very interactive and he's fun. He's got a great sense of humor, asking questions. And he, he wouldn't speak. The Holy Father wouldn't talk to anybody. He was very recollected on something. He wouldn't even eat breakfast. He had a little bit of Italian tea. And he went out for the Wednesday audience, and he was shot. It was the assassination attempt that next day. The day that he was going to launch the whole platform for teaching the theology of the body, Mehmet Ali Aja tried to take his life. And John Paul II said that he understood why that needed to happen, because he understood that blood needed to be spilled for this teaching to become fruitful. Because he said before he became pope, the word may not convert you, but the blood will. And he believed that blood and redemptive suffering needed to happen for this teaching to get out to the modern world. And so 
what John Paul teaches us in this theology of the body is that the body reveals our personhood, our identity, and even our mission. And so when I step back and I, I study the theology of the body, I think we can even move deeper beyond it by, by standing upon it. Because he reveals what the human body means. But I thought, well, what if we looked at the male body specifically and the female body specifically? What does the man's body reveal? Well, what is a man's body? How is it distinct from a woman? Well, one, for one, strength. We have been given by God the strength to initiate the gift of life-giving love. It is stamped into our bodies. And so as strength, we can use that to dominate or manipulate, or we can use it to serve. And that's what we're called to do. In fact, I read one man, he said, you know what? If a piano needs to be moved, don't be the one who picks up the bench. Meaning you use your strength to serve. And in the church, we've been giving these, these examples. Like, for example, St. Joseph is an example of service and strength. Often, St. Joseph is depicted as an elderly man. This is completely wrong. There is no historical evidence whatsoever that he was elderly. All of the evidence points to the contrary. Jewish men would typically marry at about the age of 18. And it wouldn't make sense for Joseph to be elderly because God, through the angel, said, Joseph, take the virgin. Go from Nazareth to Bethlehem to Egypt to Nazareth. That's 600 miles. That is walking from Columbus, Ohio to the border of Florida with a teenage girl and a newborn baby. And so why would God pick an 80-year-old to do that? I mean, you're not going to get there. Even if the walker has the tennis balls underneath it, like, you're not going to get there in time. Who God would put in charge would be a tecton. Now, tecton is a Greek word for carpenter. Carpenter doesn't really say it. A tecton in the Greek is not only just a carpenter, but a lumberjack, a masonry worker, a construction worker, and a carpenter all rolled into one. There's ancient rabbinical texts speaking about when a tecton is carrying lumber on his shoulder, like a a massive log, and if he collides with someone carrying a pitcher of water, what are the rabbinical laws with that? And so Joseph would, would, would chop down the trees, carry this lumber into to do work, and you could imagine he would have taught his son likewise how to carry lumber on his shoulders through the streets of the Holy Land. Imagine Joseph teaching the teenage Christ how to carry wood on his shoulders through the Holy Land for the practice that he would need one day for Calvary. And so Joseph was a young man. And you know what? Joseph was in love with Mary. Because sometimes try, people try to create a lot of distance between them. Oh, that's why they make Joseph elderly. Why? Because we need to secure the, the purity and the virginity of Mary. Mary's virginity was not protected because of his sterility or senility, okay? The virginity of Mary was protected by his virtue and by his virility. Joseph was in love with Mary. Why do I say that? Because she was Mary. How could he not have been in love with her? And, but his love was not a threat to her virginity, Her love was the very safeguard of her virginity. And so we need to chew on this, that from all eternity, God wanted to entrust the purity, the innocence of the immaculate heart of Mary to one man. And who does he give it to? A college-aged guy. We need to chew on this in meditation and on prayer of the confidence that God has in us and even among young men to guard the innocence of love, of an innocence of purity with that love that's deep within us. So we're given these gifts of St. Joseph to look to. In more modern times, people like St. John Paul II, his servant's heart that he had for the church. A friend of mine was one of his Swiss guards. And one day, Mario was standing at one of the bronze doors and he's all dressed up in the Swiss guard pajamas and everything and the spear, the halberd. And a mom came up to him with her little girl. 
Now, this little girl was deaf, and so the mom explained to, to Mario, my daughter here has drawn a picture for the Holy Father, and she's wondering if you can give it to the Pope. It's a picture of our farm back home. And Mario said, I'll, I'll see what I can do, ma'am. You know, grazie, and, and took it, and he knows, look, the Pope gets hundreds of gifts a day. It's like the, you know, I get, he doesn't see most of this stuff, it's just given to the poor. But he says, I'll, I'll see what I can do. And so he goes in, and right away, Monsignor bumps, or the Swiss guard bumps into the Pope's secretary. Oh, Monsignor Jeevish, uh, this is a little drawing some girl outside did for the Pope. And Monsignor just says, oh, the Holy Father will love it. And he takes the drawing, and he puts it in his folder that he's going to give to the Pope before his Wednesday audience. And that day, the Holy Father goes out for the Wednesday audience. After the address, normally, he blesses some newlywed couples and some sick people, and then he goes out the side door. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit was prompting him to do something else. And he starts walking down the aisle of the Wednesday audience. And the Swiss guard's like, oh, great, where's he going? What are we doing? And I got to follow him down there. And the Holy Father walks deep into this crowd of 11,000 people, and he points at the little girl, and he motions for her to come forward to the aisle. And then he looks at her, and he says, you must be Carolina. And he puts his hands on her head, and he starts praying over her, and he blesses her, a little kiss, and he's off. Mario said the next day the mother called the Vatican hysterical, saying, all that I know is my daughter was born deaf, and now she can hear perfectly fine. These things would happen so frequently, John Paul told his secretary not to record them. He said, look, we pray, God does miracles, you leave it at that. This would happen constantly. A young couple from Vancouver came to the Holy Father, and they're having fertility problems. They had multiple miscarriages, and they said to John Paul, Holy Father, you know, and the woman poured out her tears. Like, we're trying to have a baby, but we can't have a baby. John Paul just looked at her, sign of cross, you will have a son. I'm like, okay. They went home and uh, found out they were actually pregnant with a son while he was blessing them. I mean, how about that? It's about 20 bucks cheaper than a pregnancy test, and you get it straight from the vicar of Christ. And so, but you see what happens when we take the strength that God has given us and we use it to serve. And so we're called to that service. We're called to conquer with our strength. Not to conquer women for the sake of ourselves, but to conquer ourselves for the sake of others, and then ultimately called to, to sacrifice. I often think of like Jesus standing on the cross, bloodied, just humiliated, scourged, looking at every man and saying, like, especially to husbands or priests, like, this is how I got my bride to heaven. Like, how else do you think that you're going to get yours there? We have to meet him there on Calvary and, and stay there with him on the cross. And so we're given that strength, but we're also given the strength to initiate love. Unfortunately today, guys aren't really initiating love. We're initiating lust or just we're initiating nothing. We're, we're afraid to commit and to give and to initiate because, well, what if I get rejected? What if someone better else comes along? You know, well, am I give away my freedom? And so we live in this culture that's giving us this false notion of freedom. Oh, you don't want to date the girl, then you're all tied down. Oh, you don't want to get married, it's ball and chain. You don't want to have kids, it's game over. This is this bogus idea of, of freedom that we've all bought into because we've been marinated in this. I mean, my wife and I, we started to have kids. We had like our second kid. People are like, well, you're done, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, because you have you got your girl, you got the boy. I'm like, yeah, we've collected all the genders. We can stop procreating now. But this idea, this false idea of freedom, well, don't initiate love, hold back. Why do guys hold back? Honestly, I think a big reason of it for young men is we're never told how to date. Young guys today, I mean, God bless them, but they're told only 
everything they're not supposed to do. And so you think like a high school guy, he goes to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, and, and he's told everything he's not supposed to do. And he gets to college, and he's like, okay, I got this down. I can't sleep with my girlfriend. I can't look at porn with my girlfriend. I can't have an abortion with my girlfriend. I can't live with my girlfriend. Um, I can't clone my girlfriend. I learned that in bioethics class. Okay, great. I know everything I'm not supposed to do with a woman. What am I supposed to do with a woman? Oh, sorry, I forgot to cover that. Good luck in life, kid. And that's where we're at. And so I think what we need for the young guys is specifics of how to initiate love. Because you men know we do not do well with abstract principles, okay? Like my wife will speak to me in an abstract, general way. Dude, I have no idea what she's talking about. Like she'll say, honey, you know, I could use a little more help around the house. I don't know what that means. I'm like, hmm, house big. And she's like, dude, she's like, Take out the trash. I'm like, okay, now this is a conversation and we can do something with this. Same way we're young guys. Like, we need specifics. In fact, there's a professor at Boston College who noticed none of her students were going on dates and it really kind of disturbed her. And so she said, you know what, students, I'm going to give you extra credit if you go on a date. And the students were like, wow, great. Like, what's a date? And, And she says, look, you got to ask him out face to face. You can't hide behind your phone and take him out, keep it short, no kissing, no alcohol, no sex, and then come back and tell me how it goes and I'll give you extra credit. Now the students were intrigued by this revolutionary concept and they asked her, well, how would you actually ask somebody out on a date? They didn't even know the specifics. And so what the guys need are specifics. Like for one, when you ask a girl on a date, you have to say the word date. Because if you just say, we should hang out, we should get together, we should get a cup of coffee, they don't know what you're talking about. You have to use the word date to give them clarity and then plan the date. Don't sit around, what do you want to do? I don't know, what do you want to do? I don't know, what do you want? We can play Minecraft, I don't know, Fortnite. I know, plan the date. When you get to a restaurant, you pick her seat for her. Not someone tell you where to sit. If it's a beautiful view, you give her the view. If there's no view, you take the seat facing the wall so she knows during dinner your attention is on her, not on ESPN or the cute little hostess walking by. I mean, you tell us a teenage guy's like, oh, that's good, that's good. Now, I should add as a disclaimer that once you get married, you do receive a dispensation to face the Ohio State football game at all moments during your dinner. I'll let you guys sort through that one. Uh, but... No, the, the, the pursuit, I know we have one Michigan fan here, we'll have to scourge him later, uh, but, this, but the, the fact is, this pursuit can't end in marriage, because what I often say is that we have a culture right now of single people who pretend like they're dating. We have a culture of dating people who behave like they're married, and we're stuck with a culture of married people who seem to think they're single. Everything is out of order. And do you know whose fault it is? that teenagers and college students today do not know how to date, it is completely our fault because we forgot how to date our own wives somewhere along the way. It's on us. In fact, I read a priest once who said in the Bible, when it says a man shall leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife and become one flesh, the word for cleave does not mean cling, like a barnacle on the side of a ship, okay? The word cleave can mean hotly pursue, Meaning you get married and then you hotly pursue your spouse. My friend does this. I've got a friend who's been married for 20 years and he has never once missed his weekly date night with his wife. 
rain or shine, he takes her on a date. It doesn't matter if the kids are sick in the living room and thrown up in buckets. You know, they'll drug them out with some Benadryl and go on a date in the kitchen at midnight. Like, whatever it takes, he's going to take her on a date. And I'm telling you, that man's kids are going to know how to date because he saw it with his own eyes. And I don't stand up here because I've perfected this. I mean, I don't know about you, but my marriage has been a lot harder than I ever expected. This vocation has been tough. St. Francis de Sales said marriage is the greatest form of mortification on earth. I mean, G.K. Chesterton said marriage is a great adventure, like going to war. <laughs> Somebody's been married, you know, but, but, it, but it's tough. You know, it is. And I remember, you know, hearing a couple of priests, they were up one night talking to the rectory about all their experiences with marriage couples. And what they found is like sometimes they see a couple come in and they think they're all going to have a great marriage and they're divorced in like six months. Then another couple comes in and they, all, they don't have any chance and they get happy marriage for like 50, 60 years. And they're like, what's the X factor? Like what is it that makes that couple last and this one not? And they talked long into the night. And by the end of their conversation, they came to the answer. And the answer was the marriages that last are the couples that are willing to show up and fight for their marriage when things get tough. It's not about some secret ingredient of compatibility. Oh, we got to see if we're compatible. I mean, if you're a guy and she's a girl, you are not compatible. I mean, I figure that fast enough in marriage, right? Because girls are weird and guys are entirely normal. And and that's obvious, but the word compatible comes from the Latin compati, which means to suffer with, okay? So lasting marriage is, is not because it's perfect compatibility. You have to fight for it. I mean, my wife and I, I'll be honest, she and I have been to marriage counseling before. Honestly, we're going to marriage counseling next week to try to sort through some stuff we're going through right now. I don't say that in shame. I mean, the shame would be not to go to counseling because, oh, I can figure this out on my own. We need the help. You look at any military commander, political leader, they're surrounded by a cabinet of ministers and counselors. And when we try to go Lone Ranger, it becomes a lot harder than it needs to be. And so we need to tap into that wisdom of others and get counseling when we need it and show up and fight. So we're called to initiate that love deep into marriage and initiate this gift of life as well. Unfortunately, like we live in a culture of guys who are afraid of their own fatherhood. I asked a bunch of high school guys once, hey guys, what is the most common sexually transmitted disease? One guy's like, ooh, I know, pregnancy. I'm like, no. I'm like, dude, kids are not bacteria, okay? I mean, fatherhood is the greatest joy I think a man could even know. I mean, I'll tell you, like, the best part of being a dad, you know, is when your wife leaves and then you've got the kids yourself. Because if your wife is gone, I mean, there's like, there's really no adult supervision, right? And so, I mean... The joy of fatherhood, and not just biological fatherhood, but spiritual fatherhood, because by virtue of being a man, we're all called to fatherhood. I mean, listen to what John Paul II said. He's talking again to college guys, and he says, God, who is father, who is creator, planted a reflection of his creative strength and power within man, and we men should sing hymns of praise to God the Father for this reflection of himself in us not only in our souls, but also in our bodies. God has planted in the male body a reflection of the Heavenly Father's life-giving love. We're not just supposed to give physical life, but spiritual life as priest, prophet, and king of your domestic church, which is the family. Okay, what do I do as a priest of my domestic church? What does a priest do? One thing he does is bless. Do you bless your family? Do you bless your family with holy water? For those of you who are fathers here, I'm just curious. How many of you were routinely blessed by your father? Look at this. 
this is the work of the devil. I'm sorry it is, because we were never blessed. Why? Because our fathers were never blessed. Somewhere along, it just got forgotten. But if you look at the Old Testament, the blessings that they would pour upon each other, God said to Moses, tell Aaron that this is how you bless the sons of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you kindly and give you his peace. Go to the book of Numbers, chapter 6, memorize that, put your hands on your kid's head, and bless them. Something ontologically is going on in a blessing that the devil does not want to happen. Remember with Isaac and Esau and Jacob, and Jacob sneaks in and steals the blessing and the birthright, you know, from Esau. And and Esau's like, well, hey, hey, why can't you just give it back to me? And Isaac's like, I already bestowed it. And I remember reading that. I'm like, that's weird. Like, why can't you just give it to the guy? But there's something ontologically going on with the blessing. God is doing something through your authority. If we have this conference 20 years from now, and your sons and your grandsons are in this audience, and God willing, the speaker were to ask the same question, I want the entire room to stick their hands up. Yes, my father blessed me. Yes, he placed his hand and he traced the sign of the cross and he blessed our house with holy water. God wants us to do this as the priest of our domestic church. But not only to be a priest of the domestic church, but to be a prophet. Now you hear the word prophet and it's, it's, it's kind of weird. It's like prophets. Prophets were weird people. I mean, just flat out weird. I mean, you look in the Old Testament, those guys were strange. Isaiah preached for three years completely naked. No kidding. It's in the Bible. I mean, you are not going to get invited to be the Columbus Catholic men's conference speaker pulling that kind of stuff, right? I mean, you're, you're not even going to get through your parish's safe environment course if you want to you know, preach like that. And so three years, totally naked. Uh, Ezekiel, this is a guy, I remember Bishop talking about this. He said Ezekiel was known for going in and out of trances. He would eat books and once he stayed in bed for 430 days straight. So he's basically like a college student, more or less. And then you look at someone like Jeremiah. Jeremiah's the best. God tells Jeremiah, hey, Jeremiah, um, why don't you get a new pair of underwear? And Jeremiah's like, oh, great. You know, he puts on loincloth. And God says, okay, now don't change your underwear for a really long time. Jeremiah's like, all right, fine, I'm good with that. And like days, months, like he does not change his underwear. And this is getting nasty. And then the God eventually says, okay, hey, Jeremiah, you know those underwear? And he's like, yep. I want you to go to the Euphrates River, and I want you to bury your underwear near the river. I'm sure Jeremiah's like, oh, sweet. And he goes to the river, and just imagine this actually happening. You know, him standing by the river, and he's kind of like dropping his... People are like, Jeremiah, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just burying my underwear, because God said, okay, you go there, prophet. Uh, buries the underwear, and then he walks away, and you, you sure he's thinking like, whew, done with that, man. That was a rough couple months. And a uh, long time goes by, and then God comes back and revisits Jeremiah. Jeremiah, remember the underwear? I want you to go dig it up. And Jeremiah, you see, oh yeah, go, go dig it up. So Jeremiah's got to go back to the creek, and he's like this nasty fermenting underwear. He's digging it up. I'm sure people are like, what are you doing back here? I'm just getting my undies, all right? Yeah. And, and so he pulls out this nasty, rancid, rotten pair of underwear that's been fermenting near the Euphrates River, and God's like, oh, how's the underwear doing? And, and Jeremiah's like, dude, this is nasty. It's rotten. It's good for absolutely nothing. And God's like, well, you see, Jeremiah, that's like the house of Israel. You were really close to me like a good pair of underwear, and then you separated yourself from me, and now the house of Israel is rotten and good for nothing. 
I'm sure Jeremiah's like, could you not have just told that to me? Like, did we have to go through all of this stuff? But, you know, the prophets were strange. The prophets were not understood. And sometimes you will not be understood. But you have to speak. So many of us were raised by fathers. We're kind of the strong, silent type. And they never evangelized us. They never talked to us about sexuality. They never spoke to us about chastity or the struggles that a man goes through, wondering, do I have what it takes? And so they're not speaking. The most depressing statistic I've ever seen in my life was that the average child, by the time he turns six years old, will have spent more time watching television than he will spend talking to his father over the course of his entire human life. This is pure tragedy. We have to speak to them about spirituality, sexuality, ethics, faith, struggles, masculinity. We have to talk. Is it always going to go over well? No. I mean, a friend of mine explained to his son how babies are made. And the boy looked at him. He's like, Dad, ugh, how long have people been doing this? And I said, tell him the 1960s. And he said, said, Dad, is there any other way? And that's pretty much it, son. And this same dad, his 11-year-old girl just came up to him two days ago and said, Daddy, I want to be like the Virgin Mary. He's like, oh, great. She said, I want to have a baby before I get married. And dad's like, no, 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 no. You know, I want to get pregnant before I get married. That's not the idea. And so... You see, sometimes it ain't going to go over great, but it's okay. Priest, prophet, and then ultimately king to, to live it out, but to be that example and that witness. Because today's theme is, is virtue. And you know what? You know, virtue is more easily caught than it is taught. If I want my kids to be humble, I can't give them a humility speech. I've got to practice it. If I want them to respect women, I have to be gentle with my wife. I think the kids are going to pick it up on their own. Because our kids will not always obey us, but I think they will never really fail to imitate us. And so we need to look inside, like, I I need to not be afraid to go all in with God. Because I remember growing up, I was afraid to get into the church thing, because I was like, I don't want to get in all religious stuff, because, like, the people at church just struck me as strange. I mean, there were just some weird people at church. And and my friend said to me, look, you're going to meet holy people that are weird, but they were weird before they were holy. So that was, you know, some consolation, but... I was afraid, well, I don't know, I'm, I'm pretty much living a good life, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm somewhere between Mother Teresa and Osama bin Laden, you know, in that little gap there. I'm doing pretty well. And, and I was afraid that if you go all in, God is going to put you in a mold. He's going to take away your individuality, and you're going to be put in this little religious mold. But the fact is, sin is what dulls the human personality. Sin puts you in a mold. Think of the worst sinners in the world. You know, the child abusers and the convents and the drug cartels and the terrorists. They're like clones of each other. There's no uniqueness whatsoever. And then you look at the communion of saints, and they're so intensely unique because sainthood is the full bloom of the human personality. We had saints like St. Vitalis of Gaza going into the brothel to evangelize prostitutes. Then you had people like St. Thomas Aquinas. His family wanted to discourage him from becoming a Dominican, and so they sent into his room a prostitute to seduce him. And so he took a hot firebrand out of the oven, and he chased the prostitute out of the room. And so if you young guys are ever tempted, those hot firebrands, I mean, no, I'm not going to recommend that. Uh, But the fact is, you look at how they dealt with temptation differently. You had saints like St. Louis de Montfort, so different than others. This guy was a big six-foot-something French priest. He said if he did not become a priest, he wouldn't have been one of the worst criminals that France had ever known. And one day he was preaching a parish mission, and some drunk guys in the back of the church started disturbing it. And then they went back across the, the street to the bar, and he was really angry. They disturbed his homily, 
And so he excused himself from the parish mission, walked across the street, and got into a bar fight with the guys and beat all of them up and then came back to finish his homily. But guess who was sitting in the front row the next day at the parish mission? It was those guys, sobered up, a little bruised up, but they're ready to hear the word of God. But that's how he evangelized. Now, Mother Teresa probably wouldn't have taken that route. But you see the uniqueness of all of the saints, and God is calling us into that, to not be afraid. So how do we walk in this? How do we live it out? A couple just last things. One, fellowship. We can't afford to go Lone Ranger because in life, life gets busy, man. You got a wife, you got kids, you got a job, you got this. And a lot of times we drop male fellowship. We just don't have time for it. But we have to make room for this because we always become like our friends. Second thing I would say is stay close to the sacraments. Sacrament of reconciliation is going to be available today behind that curtain uh, during the lunchtime break. Go to confession. Some people are like, I don't want to go to confession. I mean, what if I tell the priest what I did? It's like, that's the point. I mean, you did not, like, break the unknown 11th commandment for the very first time. It's not like, he's not going to call the Vatican afterwards. Like, I've never heard of this before, Pope Francis. You know, Pope Francis wouldn't care. I mean, he'd be like, no hablo inglés. Click. Uh, so just go. Just go. And look, I know it can be embarrassing, a little bit awkward, but you know what? Aren't the best confessions where we just kind of lay it all out there? I remember I went to confession in college, and I had done some stupid stuff, and the priest was visiting from France. Ah, sweet, he's from France, I'll never see him again. You know, I got his bad attitude is where I was at, and I just spill all the beans. And he looks at me, and he says, Jason, he says, for your penance, I want you to tell Jesus that he has a problem. I'm like, what? He said, I want you to tell Jesus he has a problem. I'm like, you want me to tell Jesus that he has a problem? And he's like, oui, oui, yes, uh-huh. And I'm like, I don't understand. He said, look, do you belong to Jesus? I said, yes, I belong to Jesus. And he says, well, Jesus has you. You are a big mess. You are a problem. Jesus has you. Jesus has a problem. And I'm like, oh, cool. But, I mean, what a beautiful way to look at your sins. Like, just, just don't take yourself so seriously. And so, a lot of times, we, do. we just take ourselves way too seriously. And, and so, like, St. Francis of Sales, have patience with the whole world, but first of all, with yourself. And yeah, it could be a little awkward. I mean, I remember when I was in college, my roommate came home. He's watching TV. I hate Dario. You want to go to the gym with me? I know I'm really busy. Watching TV. So I go to the gym, come back, he's still watching TV. I'm like, hey, Dario, like, you got to get up, man. You're being idle. Now, he's from Italy, didn't understand English for a while. And he's like, oh, the TV is an idol to me? I'm like, no, no, idol. You're sitting around a lot. Because he was Italian. They watched the World Cup for like two weeks straight without blinking and stuff. And so I, he kind of felt convicted, though, of, you know, idleness and whatever. And so he goes to confession, and he actually confesses the sin of idolatry, okay, to a priest who was probably 85 years old and almost deaf, okay? Now, the sin of idolatry sounds an awful lot like another sin, namely adultery, which is precisely what the priest thought he said. So he goes in, hey, Father, forgive me, I'm guilty of adultery. Oh, that's very serious. Not really, Father. Oh, yes, it is serious. Oh, gee, Father, it's just kind of something to do after school. No, no, no. Don't you think you're overreacting? I mean, sometimes friends come over too. Ah! People outside the confessional are moving away, you know, from the yelling. He's got the gigantic penance, you know, they never resolve the miscommunication. But you know what? A little bit awkward, but it's okay. And so don't only just go to confession, have a great confession. Some of you have already been to confession a dozen times, but here's your confession. 
Father, forgive me, I did this. And you give him that, and you hold on to this, and you walk out the door. If that was a grave sin, that was not a valid confession. Not only is it a valid confession, it is a sacrilege, and every communion you have received since is likewise as well. If that was a mortal sin, you have not received the grace of all of the masses from then until now because that blocked the graces of forgiveness from coming into your life. Meaning, and it's one thing if you forget it, a little venial sin. It's another thing if you knowingly withhold something because of the shame That shame does not belong to you. It belongs to the devil. It belongs in hell. You give it back to him in that sacrament of reconciliation. A priest said to me, you know what? God knows your sins, but he calls you by your name. The devil knows your name, but he calls you by your sins. And so go to confession and have a great confession, and you can walk out of this conference as pure as the day that you were baptized. Secondly is to make an intensely Eucharistic life. Spend time upstairs before the Blessed Sacrament with your intentions today. Go to Mass often. If you can go to daily Mass, go. I think daily Mass is for people who have nothing better to do because there is nothing better to do than the sacrifice of the Mass. And someone who knew this was John Paul II. In fact, when he came to Baltimore in the 1990s, the church sends a group of people to get ready for the Pope's apostolic visits. The priest in charge is called Father Roberto Tucci, and he was entering the bishop's residence where the Pope was going to be, get all the arrangements. And he's looking at the hallway. It's a hallway full of doors. One of the doors opens to a chapel with the Blessed Sacrament. He says to the priest there, "Uh, Father Michael White, when the Holy Father comes, please make sure this door is closed to the chapel. We don't want to let the Holy Father know the Blessed Sacrament is here in the residence. And Father Michael White is like, well, why? Like, why are you hiding Jesus from the Pope? And and Monsignor, or um, Tucci said, the problem we're having is that we're in charge of the Holy Father's schedule. Every minute is arranged. Five minutes with the seminarians, ten minutes with this, eight minutes with that. The problem we're having with John Paul is that whenever he finds the Blessed Sacrament, he insists on making a visit to our Lord, and he gets lost in contemplative prayer for 45 minutes, and it ruins the entire schedule. He said, we reroute his Pope mobile away from Catholic churches. That way, he won't want to get out and visit God. So, look, he said, look, when the Pope comes, just shut the door. He won't know it's there. A couple weeks later, the Holy Father arrives with his entire entourage. Monsignor Jeevish is there and Father Tucci, and they're walking down the hallway. And they pass by the door. All the doors look the same. And the Holy Father continues walking. And then he stops. He turns around. He looks at the door. Then he looks over at Father Tucci, and he shook his head and wagged his finger at him. (laughs) Opened up the door and went right into Jesus. And Father Michael White was astonished. He said, there's no way he could have known. He's never been here before. All the doors look the same, but he sensed our Lord's presence. He said, you think that was a coincidence? He did the same thing 24 hours later at the seminary. He knew exactly where our Lord was. So the question is not God truly present in the sacrament. The question is, are we truly present to him? And so as we enter into Lent, to make time, extra time before him, spend extra time in prayer, there's a a thing that I want to share with you that there's an app that just came out, and I'll put it up on the screen. And what this is, is a hollow app. And I want you to try this. It's free, and they just gave me this thing, and I've been loving it. And say they said, if you share this thing with the guys, they can have it for free for a month. And what it is, if you get out your phones right now, you will not get spam, don't worry. Uh, you just text the word prayer to 
866, and you'll get a month free of using this prayer app where you can just hit a button in the morning, and it'll pray the rosary out loud with you. Meditations, psalms, morning prayer, meditations throughout Lent, scripture readings, homilies from priests, and it is an incredible thing, and you get full access to this for 30 days free. If you don't want it after that, you just discontinue. So text that. They'll send you a text back. What's your email? And then, or no, and then they'll give you the link to download it from the app store. And so that's one thing to check out. The next one is this. Internet safety. You need to lock down your home. And most of us are not, a lot of parents are not computer literate. Like you don't even know how to open an email attachment. Your kid's like hacking into the Pentagon's website after school for fun. Like we got to catch up. We don't know where to begin. And so it's like, well, I don't know why I'm supposed to click on YouTube and Instagram for all these settings. So this, if you text SAFE to that number, you will get seven days of emails. Just seven and that's it. Every email is one video. It's about three minutes long. And it'll say, here's the lockdown, the iPhone. Here's what you do on Internet Explorer. Here's how to set privacy settings on YouTube. Real simple instructions. And by the end of the week, the house is going to be locked down. So you'll have Internet accountability and safety. Because we don't have time. We're busy fathers, husbands. We don't have time to figure it all out. That'll explain how to do it. And then a couple of the resources we've got back there. One is the biography I wrote of my hero, St. John Paul II. These are stories that were never published um, before he passed away, that the Vatican didn't release. I did interviews with bishops, cardinals, and friends of his, of all his different assassination attempts. Al-Qaeda tried to kill him. Mastermind of 9-11 tried to kill him during a World Youth Day in the Philippines. A priest stabbed him in Fatima in 1982. All these amazing stories and miracles of the Holy Father we put into this book of my hero, St. John Paul II. And then in terms of books for dad, um, this one right here, Show Us the Father. A friend of mine, Devin Shaw, wrote it. A father of five daughters. And it's the best book I've ever read on fatherhood. It's Show Us the Father, Seven Secrets to Be a Father on Earth Like the Father on Heaven. Uh, Coach Lou Holtz from Notre Dame read the book and bought it for all of his sons so they could have it as well. It's an incredible book for dads, grandpas as well. And then and resources for the kids. Um, my wife and I wrote this book for girls. High school, college girls, young adult singles called How to Find Your Soulmate Without Losing Your Soul, 21 Secrets for Women. The first chapter is the top 10 guys to avoid. I know one college girl, she said she keeps this in her dorm. Anytime a guy hits on her, she'll get to know him. Then she goes back to her room, she rereads the first chapter, and she's like, nope, you are number three and number seven and number nine, and we're not going anywhere. So if you got a goddaughter, granddaughter, niece, daughter, get one of these and write a personal note to her from your fatherly heart uh, to, to live this thing out so she can find love she deserves. And then people forever are like, where's the book for guys? Where's the book for guys? I'm like, guys don't read, okay? So I'm not writing it. And then they kept pushing me. And then we wrote this one for the fellas. It's called The Dating Blueprint. I recently surveyed more than 1,500 women asking them, how would you want to be asked out on a date? How do you not want to be asked out on a date? Dating etiquette. When's the right time to date? Who should you date? How do you discern this? How do you date within your marriage? And created this little blueprint for single guys, whether it's high school, college. So if you've got a son, godson, nephew, or whatever, this would be the book that you could give for the fellas as well. So we've got those resources for the dads and the sons. And then they got a handful of CDs out there uh, on fatherhood, the talk I give for parents on chastity, on how to, one on how to break free from porn. So if you know a kid needs that, just slide under his door. I'm not judging, but you better listen to that one a couple times there, son. So, 
and those are free to duplicate. And then the last couple things we've got there is uh, we're leading a pilgrimage to Rome this summer. Myself and Father Augustino Torres do Assisi, Rome, and Nettuno, where St. Maria Goretti is from. And so there's a little, little flyer out there if you want to bring your spouse or your family uh, to go on that. And then there's also little flyers if you want to support the ministry or donate. You can do that. And then uh, we're, our booth is just straight out the door right over there. And I'll be there the entire day. Be more than happy to meet you and get to know you. And so all that stuff is available there. Now, I know I've unloaded quite a lot on you today, and it can, be, it can be heavy. You know, a lot of times we got our male struggles, but a friend of mine, he was always reading books about saints, and I'm like, hey, you reading any good saint books? He's like, yeah, I'm reading about saints and addictions right now. I'm like, oh, that's cool, like saints who help people with addictions. He said, no, saints who were addicted. I'm like, I don't remember those in catechism class, you know, refresh me. And he said, yeah, check out this guy. The guy's name was Saint Mark Zhi Cheng Zheng from China. This guy was a husband, a father, and a doctor. And he got sick with a stomach ailment, and he treated himself with a drug opium, which is a common drug at that time to treat this. The illness was healed, but a drug addiction remained. So he went to confession, Father, forgive me, I've become addicted to opium. And the priest gave him absolution and some advice, and he fell back into the addiction. And then he came back to confession, addiction, confession, addiction, confession. The pattern continued to the point where the priest said to him, now, Mark, uh, because you keep falling into this drug addiction, I'm not so sure you're very sorry for it. So I would ask you to no longer receive Holy Communion and no longer come back to the sacrament of confession till you've overcome this vice, which is bad pastoral advice to give, but the priest didn't know how to deal with confession, and Mark obeyed him. And Mark no longer received communion, though he went to church with his family, and he never came back to confession for a month and a year five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years away from the sacrament. Still a faithful husband, a good doctor, but struggling with his addiction. And he started praying to God that God would make him a martyr. He couldn't see any other way to get to heaven. And God answered his prayer. In the year 1900, the Boxer Rebellion swept into China. Catholics were rounded up to be executed. He and nine members of his family were brought to a place of torture. And as they're being dragged to their death, his grandson said to him, Grandpa, like, where are we going? And Mark said to him, we're going home. We're going home. They brought them to the place of death, and one by one, they started cutting off the heads of the members of his family. And he begged the torturers to kill him last, so that no one would have to die without him by their side. And one by one, they beheaded everybody in his family, until at last they took off his head as he was singing the litany of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And today, he is a canonized saint who died addicted to opium, which is proof The saint is not the one who does not have a mess in their life. The saint is the one who gives their mess utterly to Jesus Christ. So if the mess is you, if the mess is your family, the mess is your marriage, the mess is the culture, the church, whatever, let's give our messes utterly to Jesus Christ, trusting that he'll never be outdone in generosity because as John Paul II said, if we do this, then every man who seeks the kingdom of God will find himself. God bless you. God bless your families and have a wonderful rest of the conference. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you, man. So, thank you very much.